If you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians, if you would. We're, uh, if you're new with us here, we're working our way through the letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus that we call Ephesians. And we're taking a little step back this morning, doing something a little bit different. Um, we're going to sort of look at, if you will, at an overview of the whole letter. So relax, it won't take all that long. Um, one of the things that I am so grateful for is that occasionally um, some saint who has lived some time ago captures something that he writes down or somebody writes down for him or for her, something about the Christian life that captures my heart, something that it usually takes something pretty simple, some kind of picture, and yet it puts sort of puts the gospel together for me. Uh, many years ago, early in um, the last century, a man named Watchman Nee, he's, um, he's a Chinese Christian leader, uh, born in about 1903, I think, um, died in 1972. Uh, I don't think he actually wrote the book, but he uh, his, his talking, some people wrote down a little book, and I actually have it right here. It's called Sit, Walk, Stand. Have you ever heard of it? How many of you have ever heard of this? Okay, so you know it, right? Um, when we... Um, when we started teaching through Ephesians, um, my brother Dave Hewitt walked up to me and said, oh, I was this little book, and he handed it to me, and I said, I know this book. And then I went and looked in my library, and I have one. Um, and I read it about 30 years ago, and it captured for me. I have all kinds of markings in it and everything. So anyway, I just want to, right off at the very beginning, highly recommend this little book. If I'd have been planning ahead better, I would have ordered a few hundred copies and been able to give them to you. But you can get one, like on Amazon or somewhere find one if you would it's not very long little tiny book like 65 pages or something like that it is amazing and it does something that um it's it's just one of those rare things where it's a very simple thing and yet it's a very deep thing it's something that stirs up my hope and confidence and joy in christ and and it's at the same time it's not something i think i fully grasp but i'm working to grasp it, it's one of those places in the Word of God that is just er, that somebody has grasped from the Word of God that just stirs me up. So I just want to I want to sort I want to rob Watchman Nee's message. Um, so none of this is original today. So if you want to get right from him, then buy the little book. But what I wanted to do is share it with you because I think it captures for us in a way that I have not found anything else do the message of the letter that we call Ephesians. And, and more than that, it captures a message of the Word of God about what the gospel is and how the gospel works in our life. And it's so amazingly practical. And I hope at the end of this, it's going to take the Spirit of God to enable us, if you've never heard this before. Um, but I think you'll walk out of here and you'll say, this is the walk that I want. So we're going to need the Spirit of God to help us. So let's ask him to. Will you pray with me again? So, Father, now we yield to the Spirit of God in us. We know that we need you to enlighten us. Paul's already told us that. That only you can enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we can understand your truth. And this is some truth that we need you to enlighten us so that we can grasp it and follow it and believe it and obey it and live it. And I pray that you would do what only you can in these minutes. For the glory of Christ in your church, we pray. Amen. 
little reminder now. Andrew Palau talked about this last week again. We've been saying to you for some time that Ephesians is, is divided into two main parts. And you're aware of this again, but let me say it one more time. The first three chapters, many people say, are the doctrinal basis or the doctrinal teaching. Doctrine is simply about truth. And that Paul in the first three chapters talks about the truth of what he calls the riches of God in Christ Jesus that have been given to us by grace. Basically, the first three chapters are about all the gifts that God's given to us in Christ. That, that a real Christian is not somebody primarily who believes things in his mind or her mind or somebody who goes to a particular Christian church. A Christian is somebody who is actually in Christ and Christ is in him or in her. Are you still with me? This is the fundamental definition of what a Christian is. Someone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us and that God has caused in them a new birth so that now they have been united together with Jesus Christ. They're actually in Christ and Christ is in them. But when you talk like that, that spiritual language is a little difficult to get our brains wrapped around it because we think so much in physical terms. The first three chapters really are all about the riches of God in Christ Jesus. Then in chapter 4, if you have your Bibles open, right in chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul takes a turn. And Andrew talked about this last week and Matt a couple of weeks ago about how now Paul starts talking about now what, what you must do because of the things that God has done for us in Christ, then we walk worthy. And Paul uses the phrase walk, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, to, to talk about the way in which we live. That if God has done this incredible thing for us, defined, talked about it in the first three chapters, then, then of course we're going to respond. We're going to live a life worthy of this calling, these riches that God has given to us. Now Watchman Nee just points out that in the second chapter, in the second part, in chapters four, five, and six, in chapter six, you can subdivide that second section into a third section where Paul begins talking about not only are we to walk and follow Jesus Christ, but when we come face to face with the enemy, we stand. So the message of the letter is basically this. Sit, walk, stand. If you have a note sheet, I put the outline in for you, and, and you can look at it something like this. The first three chapters are our position in Christ, if you will. Position is the idea of that. This is a spiritual reality. This is not about a physical position. When, we, when the Bible says you are in Christ, he's not talking about you physically in Christ. He's talking about you spiritually united together with Jesus Christ. Our position in Christ, and, the first, and what we must do then is we must sit regarding that. And then he says that chapters 4, 5, and into chapter 6 are all about our life in the world. This is about living it out, living out, being placed in Christ. And he calls this walk. And then chapter 6, when we are opposed, when we face the enemy, when we have temptations and difficulties and struggles, when the struggles and storms of life hit us, then we are to stand. So it is sit, walk, and stand. We are united together with Christ. And so we sit with him in the heavenly places, Paul says. Fascinating idea. And we walk in the world. And so we are to live the life that Christ wants us to live in the world. And then when we face the enemy, then we stand firm in what God has given to us. It's pretty simple. And yet it is so amazingly deep at the same time. And if you're like me, you probably don't have a great difficulty grasping the whole idea of the walk. 
the Christian walk, that we live in this world and we relate to the world and we have, you know, and we are just, we are to grow to become more like Christ. This is called the Christian walk, if you will. And you probably don't have a really difficult idea grasping the whole idea of that when you are opposed, when the evil one comes, or when you struggle with the world or the flesh or the devil, then you are to stand, to stand firm. So this walk and stand is not so difficult to grasp. But this sit thing, hmm, that's a little different. Sit. Our position in Christ is that we are to sit. What does he mean by that? And is this biblical? So let me refer you back again to the word of God. Uh, I'll put up a verse from Hebrews. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, After he, that is Jesus Christ, had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. You believe this? This is what the word of God says. That when Jesus, how did he provide purification for sins? By the cross. He went to the cross for us. He died for us. You believe this? That he suffered and therefore your sins are forgiven in him. Therefore you have purification from sins. Are you still with me? You believe that? That you will stand one day in the presence of a holy God pure because you've been forgiven in Christ. You believe that? Seriously? I mean, honest. Well, really? So, purification for sins. And after he had provided purification for sins, after he had come to this planet, done the work of living a perfect life, and all the things that Jesus did, and then he suffered on the cross, and he died and was buried and rose again the third day, and then he walked with his people for something like 40 days, and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and the writer of Hebrews says he sat down. He sat down. Now, when he sat down, the whole idea of sitting that Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father is that the work is finished, right? When you finish the work, you sit, right? You're done. The work ends. It's also the position when Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, it is the position of honor and authority. So we have his finished work and a position of authority and honor. Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. Does Ephesians teach this? Oh, yes. Chapter 1. If you have your Bibles open, or you can look at the screen here, chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. It says that he, that is God, raised him, Christ, from the dead and seated him, seated Christ at the, his right hand in the heavenly realms. When we looked at those verses, we had a fun time talking about the heavenly realms. What is that? That is the place of God. That's the place of God's throne. That's what we now realize we cannot see because we are so we're so earthly. But he lives in the heaven in the heavenly realms. That's where his throne is. And now Christ sits at his right hand. And and Paul makes a point far above all rule and and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given. You can see his point here that he's trying to say that Christ is elevated above every power as he sits at the very right hand of God. And he will remain there. He will remain in that position of power and authority, not only for this age, the present age, but forever, for the age to come. So Christ is now at the right hand of the Father. You okay with that? You think that's true? You believe that? Then he says, chapter 2, verse 6, he says, And God raised us up, with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Oh, 
So not only is Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, but Paul says we are seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Really? You believe the first one, you believe that one. Oh, you're not sure. Hmm, yeah. But it's hard, isn't it? Because now, now if you're sort of normal, you're thinking in physical terms, you're thinking to yourself, I'm sitting in church in a pew. I'm not sitting with Christ in the heavenly realms. How can that be? Is that true? What does it mean? Is it real? What is this? So Paul is basically saying two things here, and we saw them in Ephesians 1 and 2. First is that God seated him, that is Christ. And the second thing is that God seated us with him. These two great realities. Do you see that the Bible teaches this? That that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and we are seated with him in Christ in the heavenly realms. Does the Bible teach this, my friends? What does it mean? That is why in chapter 1 and about verse 10, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. Why? Because this is a spiritual truth. And you, you actually believe a whole bunch of spiritual truth, but you may not have thought of it this way. In fact, but when you hear language like this, you think, whoa, how can that possibly be? Um, let me make a suggestion to you. Think about Jesus coming to, or Nicodemus coming to Jesus. You remember Nicodemus coming to Jesus and Jesus saying, remember what he told him? He said, Nicodemus, don't you understand that you must be born again? And Nicodemus went, huh? Um, like, I mean, he said, so, uh, can you be like reborn? Can you go back into your mother's womb? What was he doing? He was thinking in physical terms, right? And Jesus then begins talking about the Holy Spirit. And, and so what Jesus is saying, look, this is a spiritual truth, Nicodemus. And you as a spiritual leader of all people should, uh, should grasp spiritual truth. So I'll, here, okay, I want to ask you. Are you born again? How many of you, say, how many of you think you're born again? Okay, how do you defend that? You look, you don't look like babies to me, right? How do you explain that to people? I'm born again. Do you ever explain it to people? What do you actually say, born again? What is that? Is that a physical thing? No. It's a spiritual truth, isn't it? You are born again. The Bible says born from above. Another phrase that Paul uses, the new creation in Christ. And this is where he gets this language that, that a Christian is someone who is, who is in Christ and Christ is in them. That there is a spiritual transformation. There is something that happens that happens by the power of God that doesn't happen with our, so that we can see with our physical eyes. Let me throw another couple at you. Do you believe you're forgiven? I mean, seriously, all that forgiven. How do you defend that? What happened? Prove that to me. Show it to me. How do you show forgiveness to someone? Huh? Can you pull something out of your wallet and say, here it is. Here's the package called forgiveness. And let me tell you, it's physical and it's obvious. And No, you, you believe that's a spiritual truth. You believe that's something that God did before you even understood it, Right? Did you understand all that before it happened? Aren't you still discovering spiritual things that you never knew were real or true? You ever study the word righteousness? What about this righteousness thing? 
Uh, the theologians say that we have been credited with the righteousness of Christ. The words that they use is the word imputed. That the righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to our account. Second Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. So do you have the righteousness of God credited to your account? Yes or no, my friends? So what's that? Is that a, what is that? Does that mean you're always righteous, that you always do the right thing? No, it mean, but it, it's a spiritual thing that God, it's a gift, if you will. It's something that God did for you, gave to you, and you didn't even understand it. But now you, now is the more that you walk and follow Jesus Christ, the more you realize His righteousness has been credited to me so that I am righteous in Him. His purity is credited to me so I am forgiven. How about eternal life? Do you have eternal life? How many of you have eternal life but you're gonna die? Yeah, yeah, probably. So, what's with that, right? I mean, show me that one. You have eternal life, but you're going to physically die. So do you really have eternal life or not? What is eternal life? Is eternal life living physically forever here? Come on. Is it? No, it's something else, isn't it? It is a life that is eternal. Why is that life eternal? Because it's His life. Why do you get righteousness? Because it is His righteousness. Why, why do you have forgiveness? Because He is the one who has done the work. What, what Paul is saying and, and what Watchman Nee captures in this word sit is that, is that these are things that God has done for us. These are spiritual truths. These are realities. And we believe them, and we even act in the basis of them. We act as we have received the Holy Spirit. Did you, did you get the Holy You got the Holy Spirit living in you? You believe that one? Come on. Not everybody believes that's even possible, you know. But you do you? You believe that the Spirit lives in you? So prove it. How do you prove that? There are some evidences that happen in your life, but these are spiritual truths that that produce some evidence in our life. And the evidence is not the thing that proves it. It just shows the reality of it. Are you tracking with me this morning? Spiritual truth. One of the key spiritual truths of the Word of God is that you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Because Paul says to be a Christian is to be someone who is in Christ. Now, if you are in, do you believe you're in Christ? Let's try it. Let's start there. Do you believe you're in Christ? Yes. How many of you actually believe I am in Christ by the work of God, that he has actually done this for me? You believe this? So now where is Christ again? Seated at the right hand of the Father. And you believe you're in him? So how can you be in church and in him at the same time? It is because it's a spiritual truth. We're not talking about a physical thing. So you believe you are in Christ and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. So you are in him, seated with him in the heavenly realms. Do you believe this? Oh, what does that mean then? And what does it have to say to us? I put in your notes there, God does not tell us to sit, but to see ourselves seated in Christ. This is not something we do. This is something that you see, that you accept, like you accept your forgiveness, like you accept the gift of the Holy Spirit, like you accept the whole imputation of righteousness, like you 
receive and you accept the gift of eternal life. So now you also accept this reality that you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Is it real? Is it physical? No, but is it real? Can things be real and not physical? You better hope so, right? I mean, wow. You're a new creation in Christ, right? You believe this. This is what God has done for you. How did all this happen? It happened by grace. It is a gift of God's grace. Our our relationship then with Jesus Christ begins with this whole thing of sit. Sit. Why sit? Because to sit, to sit somewhere is to put your confidence in a chair, to rest in it. Not depend upon your own strength. I put all my weight and energy. When I get up and walk, you know, then you're expending your own energy. But when you sit, you're relaxing, right? And so many times we sit because we're tired. I don't know about you, but I've got a lazy boy at home. <laughs> so I'm out working in the yard, you know, and I can, I'm doing this for less and less as I get a little older. And then I have to come in and sit. So I sit after I work because I'm tired and old. And we tend to think of sit that way, that we sit because we're really tired, because we've done all the work. But then God turns it upside down on us. And he says, no, no, you don't sit because you've done the work. You sit before you work. Because the work has already been done. Who did the work? Christ did the work. I put in your notes, Christianity does not begin with walk. It begins with sit. It begins with sit. Now, this is hard for us because the reality is is that on a human level, uh, our tendency, particularly of us sort of performance-oriented kind of people, our tendency is to think nothing happens unless I do it. Unless I do the work, unless I make the effort, unless I, you know, give the energy, unless I plan and do and work and commit, nothing is going to happen. So it all depends on me. Any of you have this kind of, you're wired this way? That you, I mean, you're, I mean, it's gonna. It's if I don't do it, it's not gonna happen. And then God comes along with this word called grace, and it throws us, because our natural tendency is, is that we have to earn it all. That I, if I don't, I don't get it unless I've done something to deserve it. And so when God comes along and starts talking about grace, and when He says salvation is a, you are saved. What is it? What is it Ephesians two eight nine. You are saved by grace through faith. Not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So I have, I have to work for that gift, don't I? Is a gift a gift if you work for it? Is grace grace if you earned it? No, you see, this is something that God does for us before we even knew it or understood it. It is a gift of grace. And when you go back and you read Ephesians chapter 1 again, you begin to see that what Paul is saying there is that he actually did this before you were even born. I don't know about you, but that really humbles my whole work ethic a lot about thinking that I have to deserve this, that I have to somehow earn this salvation. What the Bible is actually telling us is that we don't earn salvation at all. We receive it as a gift. The only thing that we actually do is we reach out and take it, if you will. We believe, if you will. We turn to Christ. We flee. I mean, and I'm not even sure we do that unless he enables us to, to do it. And it seems to me that the Bible is so clear that, it's, that the work is done. 
And we enter into it. Watchman Nee said it like this. Christianity begins not with a big do, but with a big done. And then after a while, you begin to realize it was done. It was done for me. And what I did was is I just received it by faith. By faith and it was, it was a gift of God's grace. It's that this thing called Christianity is not a religion about earning anything. It's about a religion of receiving by grace. And that everything it is that I have, all those riches that I have in Christ are not something that I deserved at all. And it's not something that I earned. It's something that I simply one day received. And he helped me even to do that. You believe this? Huh. So we sit. We're, we're, this is the first step, if you will, of faith. We, we sit. So the Christian life then begins with what we could call a complete dependence on Jesus Christ, a complete dependence upon what he has done. Sitting is an attitude of rest. I kind of like this sitting here talking to you. <laughs> they say in some of the Jewish cultures, the teachers got to sit and the, other, and the people stood. I kind of like that. Just, oh. I like this, yeah. Sitting as, as an attitude of rest. You put all your weight in this chair. You're not, you're not having to, you know, to put out much effort. We, when we sit, we relax. We depend upon this chair. Think about creation with me for a moment. Genesis 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And then he started creating things. Remember? How many days did he spend creating? How many? Six days. The last thing he created was humanity, Adam and Eve, right? When did he create Adam and Eve? The sixth day. And then it says, the Bible says that after he was finished creating, he declared everything to be good. And then when he created mankind, man and woman, he declared it to be very good. And then it says, he ceased from working. And he hallowed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The word Sabbath means cease. And he stopped working. You still with me? So then the first day of Adam and Eve's life, the first full day of Adam and Eve's life, was the day of Sabbath. Do you see the principle? From the very, very beginning, God said, at the, very, at the start... You've got to begin in Sabbath. You've got to begin in rest. You've got to begin in trusting what it is that God has done. And, of course, after you do that, of course you walk then. Of course you, I mean, you don't sit there forever, right? You, you do walk. But because we are in Him, He has done all these things for us. I put in your notes, new life in Christ begins in discovering what God has done. And, and many of us, if you're like me, you've been discovering what God has done for you for, for decades, even at... Long after you were ever born again, you're still discovering what it is he did for you in salvation. How many of you is that your experience? You're still like you're still doing it right now if you're if you believe this to be true. We're discovering again that God has done this and this and this. We begin the Christian life in discovering what it is that God has done. And sometimes we're a Christian for 20 or 30 years before we look back and we say, wow, forgiveness. I never, I never knew forgiveness was forgiveness for everything. I always thought it was forgiveness for what I did in the past. But then the Bible seems to indicate that forgiveness is about what I do in the present and in the future also. Whoa, really? 
How about righteousness? I mean, how long did it take you to discover what righteousness really is, to be right before a holy God, not on the basis of what you have done, but on the basis of what the Savior has done? How long did it take you to begin to accept the idea that His righteousness is credited to me and my sin is put in Him at the cross? How long did it take you to figure out that when you were placed in Christ, you were placed in His eternal life so that you were actually in Him when He died? How can my sin be forgiven any other way if I was not in Him when He died? When He paid the penalty for my sin, He just didn't do it saying, okay, now all the sin that's coming. Actually, that sin, past, present, and future, was laid on Him. And He paid for it there. So I was in Him, and my sin was in Him. And His righteousness is credited to me, and I'm still learning about it. The work, then, that we must have is not our work. The work we must have at the very beginning is God's work. We've got to start with what it is that He has done. If you have your Bibles open, uh, Ephesians 1, 7. In Him, that is, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. How did you receive the Holy Spirit? Did you, like, open your body up to receive He didn't do anything. He just came. Grace. How did you receive eternal life? Grace. How did you receive forgiveness? Grace. It's a gift of God's grace. So when God gives a gift, what do we do? We believe and we live it. I put in your notes, this new life in Christ then continues in dependence upon what God provides. So then then we began realizing, look, when you sit, you don't just only sit. When you sit then... You, you realize what it is that God has done, and then what happen, What you discover is then you get up and you walk. And you walk out of this experience of sitting. But the, inter- the fascinating thing is that you sit and you walk at the same time. And one more time, not physical, but a spiritual reality. So you're going through life, you're going walking through life as a Christian, and you realize, look, you know, I, I'm depending upon what God has done for me. Even as I'm trying to walk and live for Him, I'm depending upon what He has already done for me, that I truly am forgiven. And therefore, if I truly am forgiven, then as I walk, guess what I'm going to do? What do you think? If you are forgiven, what are you going to do as you walk? You're going to forgive also, aren't you? Forgive even as He has forgiven you? If He has loved us so much, then what are we going to do? How are we going to walk? See, that's what chapters 4, 5, and 6 are about. Now this thing called the Christian walk. And Paul is just going to come right after us and say, Look, the way in which the riches in Christ that have been given to you, that these gifts, this amazing thing, that you sit with Christ, that your identity is mixed together with Him. Now, of course, we're going to live this out by the way we live. And, And so... This life that we're talking about is an amazing life that God calls us to. Every now and then we look at this thing called the Christian walk. If you're like me and you think, man, he, he calls us to an immensely high level walk, doesn't he? How's the Christian life walk it, working out for you? Are you finding it easy? No, I'm not. Never have. There seem to be some parts of it that just seem impossible almost. So what do we do about this walking thing? Let me give you a little quote. We'll put this up on the screen from Watchman Nee. He said, sitting describes our position with Christ in the heavenlies. Walking is the practical outworking of that heavenly position on earth. 
we walk on this earth, we're walking out the same position that he's given to us in Christ, that we are in him. You say, is this walk, is this walk thing in the Bible? Oh, yes. Well, if you have a New International Version, um, the new NIV translators translate the word walk as live. So you can read all the way through Ephesians and not see the word walk. But if you have a more literal translation, you will actually see the word walk. Let me give you a few of the verses up here in the screen. Ephesians 4.1, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Chapter 4, verse 17, walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. This is what Andrew was talking about last week. Put off the old and put on the new. Chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love just as Christ loved you. Chapter 5, verse 8, walk as children of light. You were formerly darkness, now you're children of light. A spiritual change for you. Chapter 5, verse 15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise. God wants us to walk, and he wants us to walk in an amazingly different kind of life. He wants us to actually walk like Jesus walked. How in the world can we do that? You see, this, is about, this, this whole message is about a fundamental principle of the Christian life. And it begins with sit. It begins with sit and depend upon what it is that God has done for you. And then we walk. And as we walk, we depend upon the same principle that we depended on to be saved in the first place. The Bible says, in the same way that you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. In other words, you received it all by grace. So now as you live, you must continue to depend upon the grace of God in your life. To face whatever it is that God has allowed you to face in your walk. And to live like Jesus wants us to live. The reality is, is that Jesus doesn't have a lot of confidence in my life. He has a lot of confidence in his life. And the more that his life becomes my life, the more my walk becomes his walk. Are you following me? Every now and then nod to me, because I know this is a little deep, right? I mean, you, you may be... Some of you are going... So get the little book, you know? What is the source of power for the Christian life, for the Christian walk? It is from being seated with Christ and then walking in dependence upon what it is he has done and depending upon him to keep giving me what I need. I put in your notes, the power to walk comes from resting in what God has done, sit, and continuing daily dependence on his grace. It's still dependence on grace. You see, this whole thing of, of the riches that God has given to us just take away our whole thing of that we have somehow earned this salvation. And even our Christian life, sometimes we, as we walk in Christian life, in the Christian life, we sort of get, start getting proud of ourselves because of our performance. It doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. Right? And then we begin thinking that we did this on our own, but then we realize God even gives us the grace to walk. The power comes from Him. So the Bible is just full of this teaching. Let me give you a few just three examples. We've seen one already in Ephesians 3.20. It says, To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. He is able to do more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that works within us. Does that mean we do nothing? No, it means we depend upon his power. Colossians 1.29, To this end I labor. Paul saying, I work, I walk. Struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. 
He's working and walking even at the same time he's depending upon the power of God. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, continue to work out, that's work, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It is God who is in you to work and to act. This is what the Christian life is to be then, is to be a constant dependence upon the power of Christ, the grace of God. I put in your notes, walking worthy includes progress and maturity. Of course then, then as we, as we sit and, and as we receive and understand what God has done for us, and then we walk through the Christian life, then it's a progression. It's, it's slow, oh man, and it's got its ups and downs, but we are progressing, we're growing, we're becoming more and more the beautiful thing that God calls us to be. The third word is the word stand. The Christian life begins with sit. It continues with walk, and it leads to stand. Stand. Hmm. Some of you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, didn't he get that backwards? Because I was thinking of a baby. A baby, a baby stands before it walks, doesn't it? Like a child, you think? I can remember our three sons, you know. They, they do, remember this little thing where they, you know, they're crawling and then they get over to stuff and then they pull themselves up? You know, and after a while they stand holding on to something. And they're so proud, you know, and we're so proud of them and we applaud, you know, and everything. And, and then after a while they start letting go. And then they stand. Right? And you walk up and you go, boop. And they fall over. It's real fun. You put a mattress there first, though, right? So... Well, is that the stand that he's talking about? No. You see, you do that. To, you do that. To, we call them toddlers. We call them toddlers on purpose, right? Because their standing is very unstable, very uncertain, right? I mean, it's just—it's really. I mean, yeah, it's—they're unstable. They're toddling, right? But you give them about 16 years, you start looking up at them, and then you walk up and go. And they just look at you like, what's up with you, Dad? You know, so, right? so now standing is something different. That's the stand that, that Watchman Nee is talking about. And, and it's the stand that the Scripture is talking about. Because this is the stand of standing in the time of storm. This is the stand that, that comes about through times of difficulty and suffering and problems and pain and, and, and temptation. This is the stand of standing in the territory that God has given to you. This is the stand of standing with Christ. This is the stand of victory. This is the stand of battle. This is the stand that happens to you the longer you walk and the stronger you get as a follower of Christ. Then more and more as the evil one tries to, to sink your ship, you stand. Are you with me? So I want you to think in terms of the stand like that, that this is stand of, of stand in the time of opposition to the enemy. It's a time of stand and taking over the territory of the enemy sometimes, but mostly it's about standing firm in the territory that God has already given to you. Sometimes you link arms with Christ and he, he, he wins the battle and then he tells you to preserve this territory, to stand. And, and our tendency, you remember the old word backslide? We don't use that one anymore. That's the opposite of stand. When you start going back, you're not standing. And what God wants then is for us to sit, and he wants us to walk, and he wants us to stand. And he particularly wants us to stand on the territory that he's already given to you. You say, is this in the Bible? Oh, yes. Let me show you. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He goes on, Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Some of your Bibles say resist. The word is stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. And then comes the armor of God. The whole thing is about stand. And the armor of God, we'll see when we get to chapter 6, we'll, we'll discover that almost all of the armor of God is a defensive armor. So that you can stand your ground. The sword of the Spirit it can be an offensive weapon, but it's also a, a defensive weapon. Sometimes God... Christ penetrates a place and he takes over territory and then he says, now, take over this territory and stand. He does it in our own lives. Have you overcome something? Has God done something in you where you are like enslaved to something and now you have overcome because he's enabled you? And what are you to do now? You are to stand, to stand firm. Watchman Nee says, we do not fight for victory, we fight from victory. So how does this work? It can work something like this. I've failed miserably. I've sinned again. I've done the same thing that I did before. Tempting thoughts come in my mind. I get angry, lustful, fearful. It's an attack. Impurity. It's the enemy again. What do I do? What do I do? Do I try to stand against him on my own, in my own resources, in my own ability? He's smarter than I am. He's been around doing this for a long time. He's also got some power that I don't fully understand. What do I do? My friends, the first thing I must do is I must sit again. I've got to realize again who it is I am, what he has done for me, how he has placed me in his son, Jesus Christ. And his son, Jesus Christ, is the victorious one. He is the one who has won the battle. He is the one who enabled me to even to understand what grace is. And he is the one who has enabled me to walk. And therefore, he is the one who in this moment of trial and temptation will enable me to stand. Do you get this? Do you see the fundamental principles involved here? This basic way of living the Christian life? So let me ask you, what are, where are you? What do you need to do? Do you, do you sit do you sit depending and trusting in God? Do you sit and relax? Do you, do, are, you, are you at the place in your Christian life where you finally have come to the realization that it's not all about you? It never was. It wasn't about how you did or what you did. He didn't pick you because you were so swell. Right? Why did he pick you? I have no idea. I don't know why. I, I don't know. The only thing I can do is use the word grace. Say, why why us and not others? I have no idea. But what I do know, those questions will not allow, I will not allow those questions and, and the unanswerable parts to take away the joy of what he has done for me. And I'll recognize that I have received immense grace. Have you? Received immense grace before you ever even knew it. Do you know how much he's done for you? 
Do you get it? And now when you're walking, how are you doing? Are you, are you trying to do that by yourself? Are you trying to do that in the power of your own strength? When he says, look, you've got you to gotta, you gotta trust in me to, to live like you trusted me to believe that you were even saved in the first place. You've got to go back again. You, you sit and you walk and you stand all at the same time. Do you see this? You can. You can. Let's take the Lord's Supper together. This is the best thing we could do right now. Say, does this relate? Oh, yes. Let's put that verse back up there. Um, Hebrews 1.3. Ponder this for just a moment before we take the Lord's Supper together. After he had made, provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Okay, back again. Do you believe this? Do you believe that he provided purification for sins? Okay, let's personalize it. Do you believe that he provided purification for your sins? Yes or no, my friends? Do you? How did he do that again? The work of the cross, wasn't it? He gave his body and his blood as a sacrifice for us, the perfect sacrifice that would take away the sin of the world. He did it for us. And so what do we do? We take a piece of bread that reminds us of his body and we take a cup that reminds us of his blood and we trust him one more time that he has actually done this for us. He provided purification. Now think about it. His work is finished and now he sits at the right hand of the Father. And so, where are you? Where are you now? You say, I'm in church. Cedar Mill Baba Church waiting for you to be done. <laughs> You're also seated at the right hand of the Father. Do you believe this? Amen. That you can be here and there at the same time? Yes. That in the eyes of God you are seated with Christ, you are one together with Him, that when you show up in a new body one day, He will look at you and say, You are in my Son. You think? Well, let's do communion a little different. You know, I, communion is a serious... Come, come ahead if you would, worship team. Communion is a serious thing when we focus on the suffering of Christ, but every now and then we ought, to, we ought to take the Lord's Supper and just be joyful. Don't you think? Sometimes we ought to recognize that not only is this, are these elements of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, these are also elements, they're symbols of life. Bread is all about life, and the cup is all about the wine of rejoicing. It's about, it's about food and fellowship, and it's about rejoicing and joy. So what I want to ask you to do is I want you to rejoice. In this time of communion. And I want you to think about, oh, I'm seated with him. He has provided purification of sins for me. I am able to walk and able to stand. And this worship team is going to sing a song. It was a new song for me. I think we, we did it a few months ago. I've only heard it one time. It's called Beautiful Things. Um, a couple of lines in it. One of the lines is, you make beautiful things out of the dust. You get that? What was Adam made out of? You remember? Dust of the ground. You make beautiful things out of the dust. You make beautiful things out of us. Really? Is God making a beautiful thing out of you? You think he really is doing that, wanting to do that? Another line is, you make me new. You are making me new. Both are true. He has made us new and he is making us new. So what I want you to do, if you would, I want you to just come down here. Take a piece of the bread and the cup. Take it back if you, to your seat. If you need somebody to serve you where you are, one of the ushers will do that. Do it with joy this morning. You know, Put an arm around somebody. Smile. 
look at somebody and say wow we are we are here because of what christ has done we are seated with him in the heavenly place we are walking together and we can stand you believe this okay come and take the lord's supper take it back to your seat and whenever you're ready worshiping listening to this song then take the piece of bread and eat it and take a cup and drink it and and we'll be on our way in just a moment or two